Welcome to the Hertie School of Governance. The Hertie School. Hertie School. Berlin needs a globally visible public policy school. As a school of governance, we see our mission in fostering these important discussions. You're listening to a podcast brought to you by the Hertie School of Governance in Berlin. Thank you so much. Uh, um, for inviting me uh, here today on, on dual capacity. So uh, hopefully I've, uh, I've uh, well, I didn't even have a carbon footprint. I came by train, but I feel that at least I've, uh, I've lived up to the, to, the, to the travel. So I guess, uh, you know, the question is now, are you guys going to keep your Twitter feed on to, to try to understand if Theresa May is going to uh, still exist in terms of a, as British Prime Minister in the coming hours, or if she's going to be ousted? Also, as we speak, the so-called Ledwin Amendment, so that that's the amendment put forward by a Conservative MP in order for Parliament to take back control over the Brexit process is going to be voted on, and the time is extremely tight, right? This is really, as we're speaking about this today, as, a, as, a, as really something that's, uh, that's happening, not just to the United Kingdom, but also to the EU. The United Kingdom is still a constitutive member of the EU, and we should also not forget what uh, the United Kingdom has done for European integration for so many years, right? It's, you know, in these kind of us versus them discussions, we often uh, forget that, and I've shared, my daughter was born in the UK, I was, I, I married my husband who's Spanish in the UK, so it was this kind of true uh, uh, European integration story, right? Uh, but nonetheless, uh, I, uh, I am not just uh, here to, uh, to say something about, uh, about Brexit, I'm just going to try to put it in perspective, and I'm also kind of spoken in a kind of torn to a, to a citation of Spinoza, one of uh, kind of, uh, he's of, of Portuguese origin actually, but the judge claim him of course as a, as a philosopher, that we're not here to judge people, we're not here to make fun of people, but we're there to understand where people are coming from. So in that way I think what's kind of been lost in the Brexit dis discussion on both sides of the end, so both in the United Kingdom as well, in the EU, is what is up with Euroscepticism? What's going on? What's the matter with Europe in the same way that Frank White asked, what's the matter with Kansas, right? And actually a lot of the discussions that he outlined in what's the matter with Kansas, which of course by mainstream political scientists was torn apart, but a lot of that came back in the discussion of why was Donald Trump elected? Right? The Rust Belt's decline, a lot of discussions about the political economy of voting, but also the, the, the identity. What does it mean to be an American? Does that mean to be white? Does that mean to be black? Does that mean whatever that means, right? The same discussions were going on. What does it mean to be European, right? And it's really interesting to think about that in a time where the loyalty to this project is not necessarily something you get born with, is something that is constructed, but is, is perhaps not as prevalent as, uh, as, as we know that about nation states, right? The loyalty, if we look at, at surveys, actually maybe the loyalty for the EU and the excitement about the EU is the strongest in the UK at the moment if we're looking at the People's March in comparison to what's happening on the continent. So these are really questions that are very important for a system that is not necessarily can rely on a diffuse, you know, something that, that Eastern, you know, a, a, a kind of a, a, a political scientist that we all kind of admire from the 70s, got folks, I think, also an honorary doctorate at once uh, at the FU uh, in Berlin, thought of diffuse support and emotional loyalty to a system. There is not so much of that emotional loyalty if you look at the data now. We don't know what Brexit will do. We don't know uh, how that's going to affect that. But why is that important? Because if you then dislike a system, it has a higher chance to 
grow out out of opposition towards policy, towards opposition towards the system as such. Because you question the system as such, where not many Germans, not many Dutch people, I'm Dutch by origin, question the Dutch state, the German state. It's not unheard of. Catalans are really, my husband is Spanish, Catalans are really questioning the Spanish state and what it's, what it's, so it's not uncommon that a state is questioned. But I think the EU has particular challenges because of the, of the, of the lack of diffuse loyalty and the more transactional uh, 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 a way that people look at, look at the European Union. So I think it's really important that we learn from Brexit, that we learn from the British, we also learn from that transactional nature because we see a lot of that transactional nature on the continent as well. So then the question will be, how do, we, how do we make sure, if that's what we wanted, right, to get this project to survive, how do we do that? I'm not going to be able to give all, you know, get all the answers to that. I definitely don't. I'm also in a big project together with Bridget Lafan at the EUI and, and Frank Schimmelpfennig and Markus Jachtenfuchs is here to think about differentiated integration, so other forms of integration, flexibility in integration. So maybe in some years from now, we will be able to say more about that. But what I want to do now is kind of map out what I think your skepticism is, why I think Brexit is an important part of it and how it might affect the way your skepticism will develop, but also a little bit of putting out the potential dangers that might be um, uh, entailed in these current developments that will also shape the future of European integration today. So I actually agree with Emmanuel Macron that he says that these will be the European parliamentary elections in May will be some of the most important ones that we've seen on the European continent. And I'll try to outline why that's the case. Maybe Ned, I don't agree with everything that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that Emmanuel Macron takes, takes forward. So it's also going to be quite a political talk. It's going to be a political talk because I think this is something, and it's in my generation, that is crucially important for the future of the European continent. It's crucially important for my particular family, trilingual child, you know, uh, uh, Spanish, Dutch, English combination, right? So a lot of that is actually also hits home. But I also think there needs to be a time of inspection and introspection into what the EU is and how do we go forward. So I think that's kind of the, the shape and I hope to live up to that. And, and also what I wanted to say at the end, I, I kept the, sh the, the talk kind of short. I don't know if I'm going to be able to survive to actually kind of make it short. It's, that's going to really happen, but I tried to do it. Also to just get a sense of Q&A and what we think about that. And there's many other specialists in this room who I have drawn on and their work is, is super amazing. So I would like to, uh, to get them to speak as well, as well as, as, as a lot of young people and students who, you know, for you it's much more the future than it is for me even, right? Um, now let me see if this works. We'll do it like that. So a backdrop of a lot of what we're experiencing, right? And uh, uh, that is not just in terms of the, of the 2016 Brexit referendum, but of the breakthrough in 2014 of Eurosceptic forces into the European parliamentary election. We often seem to forget that. One of the reasons why David Cameron called the referendum was because of the UKIP became the largest party in the 2014 European parliamentary election. It is, of course, elected under proportional representation, so a different electoral system than within the UK. But it gave David Cameron and the Conservative Party a sense of what they were up against in their marginalized districts. Right? And I think David Cameron and what we've understood and of also of people, I've been so involved in some advising into the Foreign Office and met David Cameron in a couple of accounts. We also said, not just me, me and Sarah Holbrook, putting up a referendum in the middle of a, a government term is like the worst thing to do. We know that governments are not particularly popular in the middle of the election and that also plays a role. But these kind of things have to be understood against the financial crisis. 
Because also, the UK at that moment in time looked like it had weathered the crisis, right? Way better than the European continent, which was struggling with the euro, which was struggling with, with, with Greece, which was struggling with the, with, the, with the refugee crisis due to the insular and the, and the kind of island nature. Uh, the UK was more divorced from that discussion. But that also made for many people think that, well, hey, actually, we're doing well, and the EU is, is holding us back. And that kind of rhetoric of you know, what the EU is and how it's actually dragging us down, and if we would be liberated from this system, we would do better, both economically, yeah, because we can, we're going to get whatever, what was it, X number of million for the NHS, and also politically, we will no longer under the yoke of the European Court of Justice or the, or the Court of the European Union. And also, we will, we will be sovereign. I mean, Millward wrote a big book about sovereignty. We shouldn't maybe understand it in that way, that actually small states have increased sovereignty by uniting at, the, at Brussels level. I'll leave that for the academics. But people's feelings were that they were fremdbestimmt, right? That someone in Brussels took over, and people really also care about who governs them. Not only who governs for them and what they govern for them, but who does it. And that was an important important message that the Leave campaign understood, but it has to be seen against this kind of backdrop of, of, of crises. The EU has seen crises before, definitely. I mean, European integration is a history of crises after crises, and that, you know, the, the European project models through, or we, 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 we kind of deal with those crises and move forward. But of course, the, the, a lot of the, the kind of weaknesses in the Eurozone, a lot of the weaknesses in terms of governance of, uh, of, uh, of, of the EMU were, were, were displayed in the crisis, and also very different approaches to the migration crisis. So it was an indication of, of, of is this union governable? Is it not holding us back? And to what way should we not get out of that? And that led in some extreme cases like the UK ultimately to the referendum. But what the UK, what other member states have in common with the UK, or some member states have in common with the UK, is a huge increase in Eurosceptic party support. And I'll talk about that in a minute. So then of course came the Brexit shock. I was living in the UK at the moment. Um, Chris Hen Henretti, who some of you might know, who had predicted, uh, who has made a model to predict leave uh, a vote. We were in a, in a kind of WhatsApp group together. And as Sunderland came in, so that was one of the first uh, constituencies to be called, he said, oh no. Because the leave margin was double of what he had predicted. Right? So it, was, it could be the case that people were not openly willing to express their, their vote to leave because it was not seen as socially desirable. Who knows why the polling was off, but the polling was off. Then someone in the foreign office who I know quite well said, I really knew that something was wrong when Swindon was called to leave. Swindon is a commuter town very close to London, and most people who live in Swindon work in London. So they're, they're tied into the financial industry, they're tied into a lot of these things that we think about when we think about remain support, right, of benefits of European integration. And actually, that went the other way, and there was a lot of sense of shock. The next day, in Oxford, I saw people crying, people who really fundamentally felt, a lot of also continental Europeans living in the UK, this was, this, is a, this was for me also a moment of real reflection about what had just happened. At the same time, I think this early sobering was the idea, we'll get through it. We'll get something, we'll get a Norway option or something like that, EEA, and it will be Brexit in name only. Right? Then, of course, that uncertainty started to evolve, and what we've seen since then is how Brexit evolved. Right? So there was a little bit, also maybe some first optimism again, but then kind of fell into, uh, into some more pessimism recently. 
This created also an issue. You don't see it that well. This is a, a Dutch, sorry, a crystal is from other Dutch people, but this is a, a huge kind of a, 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 a common thing what one think about Dutch. We don't all wear wooden shoes and have these hats, but nonetheless, uh, uh, a Dutch woman uh, with, uh, with a pair of scissors says Nexit on it, the EU controlling that person. And then this, this, this little uh, bulldog going with a UK flag on it saying, come this way, come this way. So the idea of contagion risk. Right? That was very strong for the EU, I'll, I'll get back to that, in order that this should not happen in other member states that are fairly wealthy and that think that they could, they could go out, that they could flirt with the idea of leaving because they don't need international cooperation. Not that, that's, that, I, that I'd hire to that position, but that's what certain people uh, perceive, that the EU is dragging them down instead of taking them up. To be fair, Many people now think that this contagion risk is not there anymore. I really disagree with that. And I will come back to that in a, in a minute. Just to give you a little illustration, in the last provincial elections that were held last week in the Netherlands, Thierry Baudet, who is a reinvention of Geert Wilders, and some, some commentators are now saying that they would rather have Geert Wilders to come back because Thierry Baudet is a whole different ballgame. This is someone who really you know, what maybe we'll refer to him as Bannonite, right? It's the entire program. He's, he has particular problems with women. He has particular problems with immigrants, but he goes as far as to racial, you know, he, he uses words that were used by, uh, by Jean-Marie Le Pen. So really kind of your, 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 you know, if you can say it like, a little Nazi, this is a lot Nazi kind of thing, right? So just, sorry, I used that kind of element, but like really strong, fascist uh, tendencies. We don't know that. It's very difficult to know because he says a lot of things and if that is strategic or not, but he really says things which are, which are way, 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 way ahead of Wilders. But also what is really crucial to understand in, in Baudet's rise is that he's one of the archest Eurosceptics in the Dutch public debate. And he also surrounds himself with some of the most arc Eurosceptics. And he's done this since ever he wrote his PhD thesis in history and on the European Union with Paul Cliteur at Leiden University, so a very conservative historian. And he's fundamentally has, the, has gotten the idea that the EU is part of the problem. And the only way in which the Netherlands could get its grandeur back, be the country of Spinoza, be the country of Rembrandt, is to be outside the EU. If you look at the speech that he gave, I tweeted it earlier uh, last week, there are so many references to a Jacob Rees-Mogg, Boris Johnson type of rhetoric. It's, it's very strong. If it will be successful, I mean, Dutch is a very different continent. It's a small country, trading nation. Uh, you know, but we also thought that you know, Britain was keep calm, carry on, right? Also quite pragmatic, so who knows? Right? But this is really still there in sentiment. It's, it's, it's a fringe sentiment, but it's there. Then we go to the Brexit mess. So Theresa May and the Mary Poppins and Brexit going down and the, and the deal. Um, this was, of course, also something that, uh, you know, many of you, I'm not going to give the, 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 the connotation on, on, on how I see this and that how she partly self-designed uh, it. Some of you know that I kind of wrote emails to my Dutch colleagues saying, is there a position in the Netherlands after her Lancaster speech? Because if you see that Lancaster speech and you know anything about European integration, that was going to go wrong, right? That is not possible, right? You cannot put down those red lines and not have the Irish border being a problem. 
and British public opinion being a problem because it's so split, right? And that was clear also, I mean, it was not, it was also the FT was very good at, at pointing that out, right? Um, but I think it was also the sense that she got away with some of it because also many people were not that, that knowledgeable about the EU. People didn't know what a customs union was. But an average Dutch person doesn't know what a customs union is. Not, let's not pretend that every Dutch person or every German person is extremely knowledgeable about the EU. I do admit that when then, then the data that we've done, for example, for Bertelsmann with EU opinion shows less knowledge in the UK, least knowledge about the EU in the UK, but nonetheless, some other countries are not that far off. And it's not something, as I said, coming back to that loyalty that really, you know, is part and partial of people's lives. Politics is not part and partial of people's lives beyond this room, right? Uh, and then imagine the EU, something that's that diverse, that it's that uh, divorced from, uh, from everyday life. Then there was a particular component as we go on um, of the UK's government's role, right? So uh, this, is, this is very recently of a Sky News poll blaming primarily the UK MPs. Then, of course, also this was done before the speech that Theresa May gave, right, about where she pretty much blamed the MPs for Brexit. The EU is not getting that much sole uh, blame, but all equally, right, the EU is also in, uh, in, in, in there. This, of course, was then perceived by a lot of, of European officials as well. This is a British problem. Let's put the ball back. So, you know, what people said, the genius idea of giving them the extension until the 12th of April, then making the, the 22nd of May conditional on the withdrawal agreement. Theresa May, as I just looked at my Twitter feed, seems to not be able to put up the, second, uh, the third vote again. She doesn't, it's not gonna, DUP seems not to be budging. But then we just have, you know, then the cliffhanger goes from, from, from Friday to, to the 12th of April, right? We're still gonna be in the same situation. There's gonna be a whole lot of amendments that are gonna be going through Parliament tonight, but amendments or motions don't have necessarily any legal effect. This is also what Theresa May said very clearly today, that if the change to the 12th of April is not voted on in Parliament, then it's still gonna be the 29th of March, right? I mean, there needs to also be legal instruments. So we're really not out of this yet. This is really kind of crucial. For the EU side, this is just uh, references to, uh, to the 2017 State of the Union address of Juncker. There was also quite a lot of, dare I say, schadenfreude, in the sense of, you know, Britain makes this mess. Look, this is what happens if you want to leave. This is awful. This sets a perfect precedent in order to contain that contagion risk, right? And also, Jean-Claude Juncker saw and said this, this is no longer what he's saying now, but in 2017, this is a window of opportunity to reform. Then, fast forward to the European capitals, Mark Rutte's response was the following, those people with big visions need to see an optometrist. This is not the time for bigger visions of European integration. No Guy Verhofstadt, we don't want the United States of Europe, right? So what had happened already in some member states was going further away from that idea and being much more realist. Today, the parliaments in, of, of Germany and France are meeting in Paris. That was not received very well in the Dutch press, just so you know, right? So in the sense of this Franco-German train is not perceived as that popular in the Netherlands. They actually believe that they partly have lost an ally. Economically, 
all the cards lie with Germany because the most of the insured traders is between the Netherlands and Germany. But nonetheless, it doesn't mean that wanting to remain means I like what's happening in the EU and I am supportive of the policies coming out of the EU. Those two things should not be confused, especially not by EU leaders. And I'll try to, to, to show that. Then EP elections will tell. We don't know what the result will be, right? So those of you who follow the so-called polls of polls, the EPP still looks like it's going to be the, the largest party. It has one problem that's called Manfred Weber, in the sense that I think that's not a lot of, not to say anything personally about him, but just the fact that he's not popular, right? Uh, it looks like it's going to be a, a, a fragmented parliament with a bigger liberal group, with a bigger green group, with a bigger three sets of Eurosceptic groups where the Eurosceptics are not united. Mind you, if you put all the Eurosceptic votes together, it's going to come close to the EPP, right? So it doesn't mean that the problem of Eurosceptics at the EU level is that they don't coordinate and that they're not working together. However, their vote share is large, right? It won't not be enough to block because probably what we will see is no longer the, SA, uh, the, 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 the PES or the, 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 uh, the SND being able to control the parliament with the EPP, so with the European People's Party. We will have to have the Greens with that. We'll have to have the, have the Liberals, the Aldi with that. So there will be a grand coalition of four parties probably. But nonetheless, that will resemble politics of my country a little bit more, right? Fragmentation. How do you work with these different parties that also want different things? It's going to make governability in the EU level also more difficult because you have to give it a commission or two. I don't think the Greens are going to be particularly happy with Manfred Weber. They've always said that, right? I think the idea also of get Brexit over what might be, as we think, yeah, that, that Barnier is being courted to be uh, the next candidate for the EPP. But how are you going to do that? Because you have a Spitzenkandidat procedure. You have to have Spitzenkandidat procedure, the largest uh, party, the, part, the largest, sorry, uh, grouping, uh, the head of that grouping becomes the commission president. And that was seen as a gain for the European Parliament. So if now the commission would, uh, sorry, if the council would take control where the parliament has already become weaker in this crisis period, you know, how, how are we going to do that? Is, is Manfred Weber going to step down based on health reasons? He's called back home. And therefore, we're going to do... There needs to be something arranged, right? I mean, I don't know. I mean, maybe some of you think that he has higher chances. But with the people that I talk to in Brussels, it will be very difficult to get him confirmed. And that partly is because of the, of the increased fragmentation in the European Parliament. So the issue that I have a little bit from going with this sobering Brexit, like with the, oh, you know, I drank too much yesterday, the Brits left, and oh my God, you know, I have a hangover, the Brexit hangover, there seems to be a little bit this sense of, oh, well, well, you know, then we're going to just kind of move forward and it's going to be kind of okay. But, you know, the last year's uh, uh, um, kind of political responses to the 2017 big election year were the center held, right? So Rutte made it any, any, anyhow, Kurz made it anyhow, these kind of, but they have done it with moving quite a lot of rhetoric towards the party platforms of many Eurosceptic political entrepreneurs. So I've already written earlier, it's at a potential cost, right? And actually in the last Dutch election, especially in provincial elections, where there's less at stake, just like in the European parliamentary election, there's no government that's coming out of it, then people often vote with their heart and not with their heads. Less strategic, more sincere. 
And then we might still see quite a lot of Eurosceptic party support, which is going to be a signal domestically, in the same way as it was for David Cameron that UKIP became the largest party in 2014. You can no longer just forget about European parliamentary elections, forget about Euroscepticism as some fringe phenomena. It has mainstreamed. So and the thing is, what I highlight in the book, I'll come back to the book in, in, at the end for you to buy it, but anyway, no, I'm kidding. Uh, but uh, that there's kind of a notion of caution, that something has changed in the European integration process, and Brexit is a manifestation of that change. And that's what I term domestic constraint. So the notion that public skepticism, and I will define that in a minute, what Euroscepticism means and how I think about it, through its close link to, to Eurosceptic party support and support for secession, that is not in an actual referendum, that, that will have to be, if there was a referendum held today, what would you vote? In Italy, that comes also pretty close to 50-50, actually. Um, it narrows the maneuvering room for national and European elites to do stuff. And the issue is that the public has woken up to Europe. They want something. Expectations have risen. I show that in the book at several stages. So people expect things of European elites, of national elites when it comes to Europe, but the room that national and European elites have to push forward a European renaissance, to push forward any form of big, you know, huge reform is difficult. So they resort back to technocratic solutions. You know, it's kind of, uh, um, uh, Chris Bickerton has written a lot about that and how that has been used in, uh, in, uh, in, 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 in the financial crisis, right? To get the EC, ACB in, rather than doing it yourself. But that is, of course, again, the fuel for Eurosceptics. Look, these technocratic elites, they're pushing integration forward. So it's a very difficult situation for governments. And you're now not just dependent on elections regionally, nationally, but also European parliamentary elections. Just for students, I started in I defended in 2007 on a dissertation about how the EU mattered in national and European parliamentary elections. One of the committee members at that morning said, are you not looking at a needle in a haystack? Is this really important? What about your skepticism really? Like that, right? American behavior scholar, of course. A little bit, you know, like, this is all about. And the interesting thing is, of course, not in the terms of hindsight, but you saw it happening in the Netherlands in 2005, right? Constitutional referendum, Wilders was born, that, that gave him prominent stage. So also for you guys who think you have a good idea, everybody else around you thinks it's a bad idea, just do it. <laughs> Listen to people who do know something about your particular area of research, definitely, but if other people in other fields say, this is weird, this is odd, that might actually be a good indication rather than a bad indication. So I wanted to talk about kind of the lessons of Brexit, right? And that all I'll try to outline. So Brexit as a guinea pig, right? So it's become an example for populations in the EU27 for what Nexit, Frexit, Swexit might look like. I'm just using those because you hear those the most, right? And I can talk about why I think it's in these countries also at a later stage or in the Q&A. And that, of course, has, has, has made it look like, wow, maybe we shouldn't do that. Right? Maybe that is a very lengthy process. But that is short term. Imagine that there would be a deal or something, or even a no, a no deal Brexit, and Britain in 10 years will do well, will do better. You have an emeritus member state on your shores for years to come. And that is in the central in my thinking about benchmarks, you have this benchmark for a long, long time. 
So what you do now is going to be crucial. The problem is you cannot, you can only partly control how, Brit how the UK exits. You can't control what they do after. So in that way, this is, this is also a really fundamental moment. In that way, I think even Brexit is part of it, is also lose-lose for the EU. Uh, it was someone who, uh, who uh, said that in, in Spanish politics, Pablo Iglesias, the leader of Podemos, I'm not saying I agree with all of the things he says, but he said his tweet straight after the Brexit uh, vote was the following. If the EU was such a great club and gave you such big outcomes, why did the British vote to leave? That's not entirely true. Many of us know what the EU also does. But a lot of, for a lot of people, that's not necessarily so clear. So we have to be very careful that within elitist circles, or policy elite circles, especially in Brussels, the idea that we've now created a bad president, but for how long? And is it really perceived as a bad president by everyone? Then Brexit is a Frankenstein, right? So a British attempt to withdraw is accompanied by huge political and economic risks. But it also teaches people something about international cooperation. It teaches people something about how difficult it is, how connected we are, right? Some of us might like that. I live in many countries, speak many different languages, you know, feel actually that fits more my lifestyle, that things happen in other countries. Other people don't like that at all, right? In this country, when Gauland wrote his FAZ article, one of the images he used was that people, that these, what he calls globalists, and we know that what that might what that term might stand for, but anyway, have umbrellas and the reign of their country doesn't fall on them. Right? That was his kind of image. And, and lots of people have these type of ideas. So Brexit also gives them an idea like, wow, we're in the EU, you can't even get out of this thing. That's not free. Right? So also this Brexit Frankenstein also has another side to it that we need to be careful of. And I think that is, a, that is an important point for both for remainers and leavers, if we can call about them in the UK, in the, out of the UK context, is the EU really this maze that you can't get out of? What have we constructed? And a lot of discussions in the EU are about which blood group are you, right? Are you in or are you out? Maybe the discussion is, what kind of EU are we shaping? What should it look like? How do we, and a lot of that discussion is not going on, not in the EU27 either. Macron is trying to develop ideas. And maybe we should also ask Salvini what he thinks about renationalization and what his ideas about that are. But in some ways, the discussion has to be about what is this? What have we created? Is it, what do we like about it? What don't we like about it? How do we, how do we develop our future? And there needs to be a, 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 a kind of adult discussion. Public opinion has matured in the sense that they have opinions about the EU. And those are not non-attitudes that we saw in the 1970s. They have very, I can predict on the basis of outcomes, your socioeconomic status, your education, a lot of the time, which, which opinions you have about the EU. But that also means that we need to give people a sense of how, what their place is in that system. So that's kind of to give you a little bit of the feedback of coming to the topics, and now I'm gonna go to the kind of the, 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 the intuition of the book and how I think Brexit plays a role. And there's more intuitions in the book, more generally about international cooperation, but I will just focus a little bit more on Brexit uh, because that's, that's at hand at the moment, but more than willing to talk about that in the Q&A. So for those of you who don't study public opinion in the EU like me for a living, right? So public opinion in European integration, but in international cooperation more generally, was largely seen as, as, as irrelevant. 
It was about producer and consumer groups that were influencing governments, and it was about governments sitting at the table in intergovernmental conferences. This was about elites. This was Monet, Schumann, the elite project. This is illustrated by one of the founding fathers of EU studies, Haas, also the, the, uh, in the advisory committee of my advisor. Uh, my advisor is Gary Marks. Uh, it is as impractical as it is unnecessary to have recourse to general public opinion surveys. It suffices to single out and define the political elites in the participating countries to study the reactions to integration, and it's European integration here, and assess changes in attitudes on their part. 68, right? Long time ago. But that was it. It was an elite project. It was never developed as a bottom-up. Bottom-up by, by elites. Right? It, of course, comes from the Federalist Movement. It comes from the Veneto Manifesto. It comes from these kind of pulls to federalism in the Second World War. But it was largely an elitist project. It was also called the so-called permissive consensus. Right? So people more or less, also in a time probably where, where, where people were, were, were more trustworthy of their elites, were more tied to their political parties, through their employment status, through their religion, you know, through all of these, uh, uh, you know, what, what Leipzig would call kind of, a, kind of a pillars uh, in, in, in society. Elites got a leap of faith to do what they could in order to put that integration progress, and people more or less thought it was going to be in the interest of them and their country. There was not a lot of contestation, not a lot of politicization of what was happening at the EU level. Then fast forward, as I said, Brexit, but also really the 2014 European parliamentary election. Note, there's nothing on the y-axis. It's just in order for me to get the names to go across. Uh, on the x-axis, it's the so-called hard Eurosceptic vote share in the European parliamentary election of 2014. Paul Taggart and others developed a classification of political parties that are Eurosceptic as hard or soft. Hard is Rassemblée Nationale, form of Front National in France. UKIP in the UK. Thierry Baudet, Forum for Democracy and Forum for Democracy in the Netherlands. So explicit references to leaving. Or breaking down of the project into, you know, some national club. Soft Eurosceptics are Podemos. Syriza under Tsipras, maybe not Syriza under Varoufakis, but definitely Syriza, or Syriza influence of Varoufakis, but of, of, uh, under, under Tsipras. Many left-wing parties, like in the Netherlands, the Socialist Party, Spalios de Linke here. Still, we buy into the idea of Europe, but we're really critical of the implementation of the idea. We think that the EU might be neoliberal, might be there for banks, might not be there for the ordinary people. Being for banks and not the ordinary people, that was the reaction of Pepe Grillo, the founder of the Five Star Movement in Italy, to the Brexit referendum, right? Again, why would you leave a club that serves your interest, right? So the idea that there's inequality in Britain, uh, sorry, sorry, inequality in Britain, <laughs> inequality in the EU, Piketty has also made this argument recently in The Guardian, it's also about those reflections coming in and there's huge inequality, not just within countries, but also, of course, within the union between a, a country like Greece or a country like the Netherlands. And, of course, the, the Eurozone crisis, we didn't start, the Dutch and the, and the Germans did not say, like, je suis Charlie, after the Charlie Hebdo, we didn't say, we're all Greeks. It's like, okay, Greece, you have a problem, now go fix it, right? There was, that was also the kind of image. I'm, I'm making it very, very 
uh, I'm charging the image, but I'm doing that, that in respect in the sense that that was also the image that a lot of people on the left got from, from, from Europe. And it, it helped the rise of Syriza, it helped the rise of Podemos, uh, and it made them very, very successful. It also probably helped the rise of Mélenchon in France. So the way we need to think about the EU, what, I've, what, I've, what maybe you've not 100% got, but I try to do in my introduction, is that the way I think about the EU is that people think about the EU not just, about, not just by thinking about what happens in Brussels. They think about the EU vis-a-vis -vis their nation state, vis-a-vis -vis what they have at home, and vis-a-vis -vis what they think an alternative to integration could be. I'm not saying that those alternatives are real, that those alternatives are good, but it's basically the red bus of Brexit. If we leave the European Union, we're going to be able to save 320 million and put that into, into the NHS. That might be a wrong number, that might be what, but that's the kind of campaigning I'm talking about. The same that, that Cameron put forward by the Treasury and the Bank of England supported, right? That was also hugely uh, political for an independent, at that moment in time, independent political bank. Uh, the, the history, of course, of the Central Bank in Britain is that it has been political, but nonetheless, this, this was an illustration that they took aside. It was 4,300 pounds per family member would an exit cost, right? It was really like that. It was about what is the alternative state what would Brexit look like? And the campaign and how Brexit is discussion now is not only, it's is actually not about the EU. It's about the alternative to the EU. And that is crucial in the way people, I think, think because it creates the benchmarks that people employ. And why I not, might not be able to understand a forum for democracy voters because I employ a very different benchmark than they do. They have very different ideas about how the Netherlands would look like outside the EU. And the issue is that this is a counterfactual. What would the EU, what would my country look like outside of the EU? Well, that doesn't exist, the counterfactual. So I, that gives a lot of room for rhetoric. Saying it will look like that. It will be greener. It will be, it will be black, it will be hell, it will be worse. Right? So similar campaigning actually going on also in the Scottish referendum. Similarly done by Catalans in, in, uh, in, in the election in, in, in Catalonia. We're gonna be member of the EU. Oops. That was not entirely clear, right? There's a lot about the viability of that alternative. And this is also the way I kind of conceive of, in the, in the book, conceive of what skepticism is. I do that on two dimensions. I'll just leave it here for one. But let's imagine that you could put the benefits of a system on one dimension, policies, the outcomes that it produces. In the book, I also talk about the regime, so the, the quality of government that the system produces. But now, for this sake of argument, let's just think about the outcomes that I get. People care deeply about the outcomes, what they're getting from a, from a system. From the least preferred to the most preferred, and you have the status quo of EU membership, and you have some alternative state. And what it is about is the EU differential. Is the alternative state, in this case, to the right of the status quo? And you're a Brexiteer, then you're like, let's try to go. To go. When it's to the left, of course, the, me the membership is seen as more valuable vis-a-vis -vis some alternative state. What I show in the book is that Euroscepticism has developed in the countries that are the richest in the EU. It has developed among some of the poorest members in our populations, but also among some of the richest in our populations. 
And the argument that I have for that is the following. The only reason why you would risk and flirt with your skepticism, hard of the soft kind, but especially the hard kind, I focus primarily on the hard kind, wanting to leave or wanting to renationalize, is when you think you can, you can carry the risk. Your country is good enough, quality of government, outcomes are good enough, because Merkel is a great chancellor, because Rutte is a great prime minister, and therefore I flirt with exit. Then you get also at the individual level, strange bedfellows. You get Sunderland and Somerset. You get Jacob Rees-Mogg and UKIP, and the average UKIP voter. You get the person who can risk everything because he's so buffered out of the economy that it doesn't matter what's going to happen. But you also get the person who's so poor that any change to the certain status quo is preferable to the current. So now you get an interesting coalition. That was the Brexit coalition. That is not as pronounced in every country, right? Because Elements are, are different in different countries, but it's something we need to think about. And interestingly, this leads me also in the book to put forward that actually economic growth and quality of government, that, that the, the fruits that people get through international cooperation, could become the risk hedging mechanisms that make them flirt with leaving. And what I show in the book is why is that the case? Because people don't attribute those outcomes to the EU. They attribute those outcomes primarily to their national states, to their national system. Not to the politicians. Politicians are not, are, not, are not popular, right? But to something that is British, something that is Dutch. Like, we have such a good parliamentary system. The, U, the, the EU is worse. We are a trading nation. We do so much well. Look at all these others who are doing so much worse. And then European integration, if we're not careful, becomes a process of adverse selection. So the countries that remain are the Greek, are the Greeces of this world, that flirt with the idea of leaving, but then think, ooh, if I leave and leave the euro, that's going to be so bad. Or also, to be fair, perhaps, I'm going to be controversial, revoking in the UK. Because, of course, it doesn't mean that all those remainders, as, as, as Rafael Baer outlined, I think, quite eloquently, are, are proponents of more integration in the future. Right? So then it also is going to break up these ties again. So, it's, so the issue is, if you don't have loyalty for the system, it becomes very transactional in this particular way, and then you have to be very careful about how those transactional outcomes are going to be attributed. But the problem is, do you really expect that, 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 that Chancellor Merkel, she's done it maybe a bit better, but let's take my own country, Crystal can agree if she agrees with that. He's not saying, I am powerless, all of these outcomes are due to the EU. No, he claims them. Right? That's what a national politician will do. So who is going to defend the added value of the EU that the out makes clear that those outcomes are, have to do with a single market and makes that case? But even if you would do that, those outcomes are so tangible. It's so difficult to say the common market led to X percent of growth. Without the common, it's very difficult. And there is where Brexit again comes in. Because if the alternative state of Brexit looks better, it's going to be even more difficult to see that, to, 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 to kind of develop that alternative. Uh, to, to, sorry, to, to, to develop that, 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 that rhetoric of, of the added value. So not to say that I think now it's not a mess, and uh, definitely, but we shouldn't only be thinking about the now. We, could think, we should need to think about the potential outcomes of Brexit, right? So as I show in the book, that alternative state is not viable. This can be both as perceptions, that people think that their system 
is doing good or bad, or it can be actual outcomes. And then alternative state is not viable, is viable. I just define that here as, as performing above or below the EU average. What you see is that, of course, hard year skeptic support is not the majority by far, but it's way higher in systems that perform well in terms of quality of government, in terms of economic outcomes, in terms of all kinds of outcomes, or people perceive them as such. The same with wanting less integration, right? So even that, that a lot of the discussions about kind of Europe are then of Macron is like a European renaissance, there's very little support in European public opinion for a European renaissance. Because I think the first step needs to be taken is to make clear what the added value of the EU has been, why it's so valuable, and why we need a European renaissance in the first place. Right? So there is a step that needs to be really taken, I think. I just really, I do this with experiments, with RDDs, and for your, the geek political scientist, with uh, natural experiments, with conjoined experiments, with like whole kinds of, to make these kind of arguments, but this is kind of, I'm just kind of pushing it to the core today. So why is Brexit important? I had a really nice version of this book ready. I just added one more chapter in it, which was Brexit. So it took me a little bit longer to publish because the Brexit is a perfect way of revealing the alternative state. So people are not just learning about the, the, the EU by the experiences they make in the, in, in, in the Eurozone crisis, as I just outlined. Some countries did a lot better, some countries did a lot worse. But they're also learning to see what is, what is happening to the UK and what does that tell us about remaining, right? So this is the vice president of the European People's Party straight, you know, in, in 2016 saying, the British are, of course, testing us. We all know that. They are testing how united Europe actually is. So what is important is that Europe stays together. But they're also a test for public opinion. They're the guinea pig, the president. So what's going to happen? So what you see, of course, and we have done data before and after, the same people before and after Brexit in between, a panel. What we see, confidence intervals, not all of it is statistically significant, but later on you see these kind of increasing even more. So this is April 2016, public opinion, April, uh, August 2016, public opinion. And this is, if there was a referendum held in your country today, would you vote remain? Would you vote to become a, a member? And what you see in the EU27, in some of the biggest, largest member states, is that support for the EU has increased since Brexit. And as we go further and further, and as, as the Brexit Frankenstein becomes clearer and clearer, support increases. In some countries, like Spain, there's not much of a difference because in Spain, it's almost 90% support for remaining. Right? There is a ceiling effect. You can't go much higher. But for some other countries, interestingly, in Italy, we see much less movement. I'll come back to that. Look, Italy in, in 2016, it's gone up 50-50, yeah? Remain versus leave in a referendum, just to say. The EU is not one thing. The EU is made up by different national systems that have very different national introductions, that have very different interpretations of what the alternative state is. Just as the Brexiteers are talking about the British Empire, Salvini is talking about the Roman Empire, right? So in that way, there are very different traditions. What you see in, the, in, in perceptions that the Remain support is much higher, of course, amongst those people that think that Brexit will be bad for the UK. So the same, you get this alternative state, it reveals it to you, and the political and economic outfall of Brexit looks so bad that even if I wasn't the supporter of the EU, I don't want to leave now, right? Among those that think Brexit are, have good consequences, small group only, one third of the population. Um, in 2016, I don't know how that is now, uh, uh, they want to leave, right? 
So of course that's the that's that's your Rassemblée Nationale, that's your AfD voter, those type of of uh, of, uh, of, uh, of public, and that's of course a significant difference. If you try to then estimate, uh, oh, this is just the difference across countries. You see it in, in, in most countries. And actually, in Italy, it's a big, big driver, right? So, also, if you just do it against other things that predict why in the EU 27 would people want to remain, right? So, consequence of Brexit has a big positive effect. Well, too many foreigners, low trust in politicians, of course, makes people more, more wary of remaining in the EU. It's very similar to Brexit. You can have an issue of like what's influencing what. Is there an endogeneity problem here? I've also done some experiments, giving people vignettes. So I'm trying to do it in a more randomized way. Right? So the idea of when that alternative state becomes worse, when Brexit starts unfolding and looks bad, yes, Remain support shoots up. But what's really important to remember here, that it doesn't mean that these people, they love everything about the EU. They don't want to leave it. But there's still quite a lot of policy skepticism within the EU. It's also not, not, we see not the similar rise in support for policies out of the EU or outcomes out of the EU as we see in membership. So the, the remain sense is, is, is increased, but not, uh, 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 not necessarily uh, the, 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 the support for, for everything in the EU. In the book, I make a difference between those people who want to leave. I call them exit skeptics. And what seems to have, Brexit has done, it has increased remain skepticism. So those people that want to remain, but are very skeptical of the EU, and want to change it from within. From the EU side, that might, might be a more difficult card to get. Because that means the Salvinis, the Kaczynskis, the, the, those that want to change the EU and mold it via the council to their own liking. I'm not saying that every member that votes for them wants that, but at least these politicians have a clear agenda now. And actually, in that way, what these parties have done, they have, left, they have taken back, and, and, and Paul Taggart and others, and, and Steve von Kessel have done interesting work about that, that they looked at the rhetoric of hard Eurosceptic parties post-Brexit. They make no references anymore to out, right? So they're not, Thierry Boudet does it still in the Netherlands, but Wilders doesn't do it anymore. Sweden Democrats don't do it anymore. Le Pen, when she was, for those of you who speak French and follow French politics, when Le Pen, in her debate with Macron, with Macron, was asked by Macron if she wanted to have all debt in francs, the day after she said, nah, we don't really want to leave the euro. Salvini, basta euro, I never had that t-shirt on. I mean, come on, Matteo, there's, I don't know how many t-shirts. You know, photos with you having that on, but it's the tempering of that sentiment. But the skepticism hasn't gone away. So we have to then really deal with that within the EU 27. Interestingly, what you also see, this is just broken it down by, by the party that people feel close to. No, this is not voting. Just, I asked the question, do you feel close to a political party? If so, which one? So this is in Britain, uh, this, sorry, this is in Germany. This is good, will the Brexit have good, bad, or uncertain consequences for the UK. And here you see clearly bad consequences what CDU, CSU loyalists say. SPD, Bündnis 90 Die Grünen, Die Linke, FDP. But not so much in the AfD. Much more varied about how they see Brexit. It's data from, data from 2016. Uh, no, actually, sorry, no, this is data, this is recent data. This is our data that we just published last week with uh, last year with Batisman, this is data from, from 2018. I should be correct. The same if we go to France. The Front National, right? 
No, sorry. This is the data from 2016. The next slide is more recent data. Sorry. So this is more recent data that we just published, EU opinions, December 2018 data uh, of my work that I do with the Bertelsmann Foundation. This is the same question. Will the UK be better off, worse off, or the same after Brexit? Slightly different question wording, but better, same, worse. Worse is, uh, is red. Germany, you're the champions of uh, saying we're really bad, right? Uh, but overall, the red, except for France, where it's, where it's, where it's you know, a third each, is kind of uh, uh, strong. Interestingly, what we also see, Italy is much more varied, right? So the German public opinion is also a different one than different other countries, which I've just outlined again. France. Look at the FN, uh, or Rassemblée Nationale voters, right? So she rebranded her, her party, right? From Front National into Rassemblée Nationale, uh, Le Pen. Uh, so 60% almost say that the UK will be better off. So if this sentiment rises of these type of parties, they have very different ideas about what Brexit would mean. Also, what we know is they're less, less driven by economic, by, by, by economic news. They, of course, are deeply concerned about inequality, but they seem to consume a lot more identity-type news. I mean, there's a lot of evidence that comes out of Klaise Freises. They look at very different things. They might be saying, well, you know, we're no longer fremdbestimmt, that's fine. Okay, there's an economic price to pay, but that's fine. It's very different for mainstream elites. The same what you see in Germany. So this is recent data, 2018. Still, 42% of AfD loyalists, or people who feel loyal to or feel that they are close to the AfD think that, um, that uh, uh, Brexit won't, won't have, but will actually have good consequences for the UK. So what does this all mean? And that's the, that's the last thing I'm going to say. I have the tendency of always to kind of, when, 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 one, when, when one public opinion goes one, to give a little bit of a correction. So hopefully I, I did a bit of that. So the euphoria of Brexit, I think we should be very careful not to go into some euphoria now. So Brechtmik as a benchmark. This is really crucial. This was crucial to the UK. I've, I was at Dexu in the foreign office and said that for these reasons and the way that I think about public opinion and the way it's playing into national politics, as I outlined before, you're not going to get a good deal. Because the UK cannot get a good deal, right? Nigel Farage was on, 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 on TV last, a couple of weeks ago, saying, yeah, but we get a deal that's worse than membership. Nigel, what did you think, right? It's this sense of that, 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 that you can leave the club and then, and then have all the, the advantages. It's cakeism, as it's often been called. But it also is, of course, of, of, of clear essence, because Brexit is also about the future of the EU very clearly about the extension discussions. We don't want this to, to bleed in too much to European parliamentary elections. But also Brexit cannot be too bad. Because if you make it so bad, and, and a maze, and it goes on forever, for example, also that's not a positive commercial either for the EU and how it deals with a former amateurs member state. So it's a very fine line to walk. And I think many EU uh, in national capitals, that is very clearly understood. But, you know, it's, it's really difficult to deal, you know, because the EU might look like a prison. Also, you get the sense of what could happen where you could have in, 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 in Britain the kind of, you know, the EU is at fault. Or the Dorstoßlegende. I mean, there was some other that made us do this. In Europe, that could be, there is no alternative to this. That is what Baudet literally said. Look. 
they frame it to you as if there's no alternative to this, as if you can't do anything else. What the EU is, these are his words, right? What the EU is, the elixir, the religious elixir that mainstream elites have drunk. And they will tell you there's no alternative to this, but I'll tell you there is. There is a proud Dutch, Dutch nation, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, right? That was the type of speech. And there is no alternative to this, what it was for, 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 for Margaret Thatcher, for the common market, uh, sorry, not for the common market, sorry, no, that's a Freudian slip, for the market uh, and, uh, and for deregulation, uh, they're framing it as, as that's what it is for mainstream elites. And that's still, again, not a positive image. This ultimately makes a negative case for integration, right, and for European cooperation. And ultimately, I think the, the project can only survive, as I said, when it's so transactional and when there's not this clear loyalty. Who knows if loyalty will develop, but it's not going to develop from one day to the next that you need to, need to start making also a positive case about what is this added value? Why is it so, not just your, your economy is going to collapse or you can't govern yourself. It needs to be a positive case for Europe. So Brexit shows us the glimpse of what happens when exit skepticism can harden, right? Or this hardier skepticism can harden. But, but at the same time, for the EU27, it's decreased this viability of an alternative. These ideas of, oh, we're going to follow through, you know, with Nexit, Swexit, Frexit, right? But I think what is really crucial, which I already highlighted before, that these exit skeptics have now softened their tone in the sense that they don't want to leave, yet now they're focusing very much on the constitutions of the EU, so so-called remain skepticism. And the question is, is that a whole lot better for the EU to deal with? So then I think what is important to think about when we move into the European parliamentary election to not confuse support for membership with support for EU policies or for further steps of cooperation. Not everyone who votes for the CDU wants more European integration. They might not want to leave. They might have an adherence to the European ideal, but they don't necessarily want to deal with some of the difficult policy choices that need to be made. Also, a word of caution about this kind of elite framing, not always, but you see it sometimes as, as Brexit being a blessing. Well, that depends. Might be in the short term, might not be in the long term, as I said. How will that viable emeritus member state survive? And later on, right? And I think one thing that this has made clear to me, and, and this is not only my own, but it's my thinking also with Kate McNamara from Georgetown, where we wrote a foreign affairs piece uh, uh, last year, that really what we need to do is move beyond this dichotomy or in or out. Either you're with us or you're against us. Either you have to start talking and, 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 and getting a sense of what, what some skeptics want, what some publics want, what was the issue in Britain also, how can we deal with that? Britain, British case clearly has its particularities about how the UK has dealt with it, but there's also something that the UK has similar with other member states. With the Dutch, for example, I came back after a decade of the UK in my own country, and really, it was as if I, I went to study in Berlin pre-post-Fortan, so I left in the Purple Coalition, came back with the Fortan, I'm like, what happened to my country? You know, like, all of a sudden, it was the, 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 the shambles of, of the Purple Coalition. Now I come back from a country that I thought was pro-EU to, to, I think, a quite Eurosceptic country similar to how I thought about the EU. Maybe not the idea that you're from the continent and not this idea that there's this physical distance, but still this idea that what is in it for us. And really, Brexit is going to put that to the core because, and that question is going to be a case in point because we have to start talking about the budget. The Netherlands is a net contributor. 
it will have to start contributing more because of, of Brexit. And that's going to be a very difficult discussion. And that discussion you need to make clear. You will only, I think, will, if you will be able to win that discussion by making very clear what you're then paying for. And what is this added value? And what should the Brit British have not left? Not just saying that, you know, the, your, the economy is, is going to collapse if you do. So I did a whole lot more in the book about uh, different types of skepticism, how that relates to reform preferences, how that relates to voting in the European Parliament, how that can explain Brexit, all these kind of th things. Uh, that's the book that came out last year with Oxford University Press. And one of, I think, the, the clear reasons, note that this is not because I think that Brexit will be a success, right? It was just when, when you cut off a balloon, it has to go up. So with, the, with the, the kind of people making the cover, we kind of put your skepticism there to kind of, you know, it's not necessarily, it will, it will frame the future of the European integration debate. But I think what's very clear is that we have to be very careful of putting public opinion down as one thing. There are these balloons of different countries, and even within different countries, there are very different discussions about the EU. And I think we have to be sensible, sensitive uh, to the discussion, and then later on, sensible about what we do with them. So that was just kind of a, a word of caution and trying to put Brexit in perspective. Um, and I pushed it also a little bit for the sake of argument, so I look forward uh, to, uh, to the discussion. wanted to ask, so um, yeah, go for it, Berlin. <laughs> ask uh, Catherine. Shall we, um, do we have anyone with the mics or shall I just give them? No, you do that. All right. Thanks a lot. Um, so my question for you is, like, despite this uh, desire to avoid the maze trap in leaving the EU, do you believe there is perhaps an unconscious motive to be a little bit more punitive to the UK in terms of leaving? to make it a little bit less attractive for the alternative state in the future? Um, is this, yeah. Um, I guess it's this, the trade-off. I, I think you really nail it on the trade-off in the sense of it can't be too good, but it can't be too bad either because it will be seen as punitive, it will be seen as, as, as not good, which was also a lot of the discussion about how the, how, the, how the Grexit referendum and how the Greek bailout was being discussed. And I think uh, uh, elites are very aware of that. It's really a catch-22, right? Because, okay, sympathy with the UK. Enormous amount of people uh, voted uh, uh, on, uh, sorry, um, uh, um, not voted, but um, went to the streets on Sunday. Huge petition to revoke Article, Article 50. This is more participation in EU affairs than we've seen in many other member states. So huge, but we also know that that's not that's not a one-to-one -one correlate with EU public opinion. John Curtis, and now Sir John Curtis, I should say, polls a lot of this. Actually, there might be a slight flip to remain, but it's not huge. It will be 55-45, something like that. Which then, of course, brings the question of like, what do you do now? Right, so I think it is in the interest of most EU leaders to get this deal to be voted through, 
That is, that is clearly, and that is also, I think, by the short extension, makes that clear. If you do anything else than that, you have the issue of the European parliamentary election. I'm not entirely sure how this is not going to bleed through the parliamentary election, considering that the Dutch parliamentary elections are on the 23rd of May, and the cliffhanger is now on the 22nd of May. That's going to like totally affect, I guess, uh, 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 Dutch public opinion uh, in how they're going to deal with Brexit. But it's a really difficult, difficult case, because if you do a long extension, you move away, A, from the treaty framework, you do again the kind of muddling. Then secondly, what is going to change? That, that is the kind of key element, right? So it's, they have been very clear not wanting to be punitive, but you also saw Macron kind of upting his speech uh, last week, uh, um, actually, Rutte made the same, actually also being a bit derogative of Theresa May in some, in some sense, making jokes, right? And I think partly it's also, there's a little bit of Brexit fatigue. There's Brexit fatigue in the UK. There's Brexit fatigue on the EU27. So it's just a really difficult issue of how you get, how you get on. And, and, and I think for some people, and I don't know how this can be true, because I personally, by all things I've seen, no deal will be in a disaster but on, on all sides. It might not be affect the Spanish, you know, the, it wasn't the FT, the Spanish economy that much, but many, many, many of these core member states are going to be affected. But it seems a little bit from our, at least the rhetoric that they try to really pull up the new deal rhetoric in order to get that vote through. But now, as it looks like, you know, that won't help. So the question really will be, what is Parliament going to do this time? But I think punitive to the UK is ultimately not a kind of image that, that the EU would want to portray. Thanks. Um, I was wondering um, how important you think is the distinction between the European Union and Europe, because we've seen a lot of space and debate being devoted to that distinction, especially with regards to Brexit, and then also a lot of EU skeptic parties seem to be drawing on that distinction strategically. No, no, I, I think that's totally right. In the sense that what they are doing now, I think that has exactly been one of the moves, strategic moves by a lot of these, what we foreign called hard Euro skeptic parties. So parties that were flirting with exit had references to exit in their any manifestos. And they make exactly that distinction. We're European and we share something, but we are not pro the European Union, i.e. not in the way that it's institutionalized now. We want to cooperate, but in some much looser form, in a kind of Staatenbund, one would say perhaps in German, right? So, and, and this, is, this is a kind of rhetoric that is, that is starting, and you see that very clearly. It also seems to be a bit sequent. You see different, you see Kaczynski saying something like that, Salvini saying something like that. It's also the question of now, will be a really case in point, will the European parliamentary election of 2019 see as much division among Eurosceptics as we saw in 2014? 2014, they did extremely well, but they never got to coordinate in any way. Right? And now there seems to be a little bit more on message. But still, I mean, Kaczynski and Salvini are going to disagree on Russia tremendously. They're going to disagree on a lot of things. So as, as kind of remainers, if you want to talk that word, people who want to stay in, in, in the EU or, 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 or so let's say European supporters also don't, are not so sure what they want from Europe, neither are the Eurosceptics. So the question will be, you know, are, is there going to be a united alternative vision being divided? And I think that might be a blessing. Because member states are so different and these alternative states look so different, it will be very difficult for Eurosceptics to develop a coherent alternative vision as well. So it's like, you know, the same, the same problem on the other side, right? Uh, 
Hello, thank you very much for your um, for the lecture. It was very interesting. Um, the way I understood it, the alternative states seem to be sort of a rational calculation about what could be if the EU wouldn't exist. Um, but in both the English and uh, both in the German and the Dutch language, there's a saying that the wish is the father of all thoughts. So is it really that there is sort of a rational calculation and people choose their position? Or is it rather that there is a distrust towards politicians or a dislike of the status quo, which informs um, sort of perception of the alternative state? Yeah. And if that is the case, does that sort of change anything about the lessons that we can draw from Brexit? Yeah. So in the book I show it can be all those things. So 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 the thing is that it can so at the aggregate level it starts looking quite rational. Richer member states, but that's also because you're average, you know, you're aggregating up. Richer member states is actually that's actually becomes a breeding ground in the crisis for skepticism, for especially also flirting with exit in the extreme case and later on in the UK. But interestingly, for example, when you look at uh, at uh, at kind of leave supporters, so they don't like EU institutions. They don't particularly like British institutions. They just dislike EU institutions more than they dislike British institutions. So if you understand it as relational in the way that I do, they still become skeptic for the basis of that. But not all your skeptics are like that. So that's the kind of, if you would, maybe the Sunderland, you're a skeptic if you think about it that way. There are also people who basically have quite high levels of trust in those, but still think that their nation state and their national institutions are just preferable to the EU. So you can get to this alternative state in very different ways. What I didn't do in the book, which because you have to make a choice at a certain point, why this is also so crucial is to try to understand how these benchmarks are created through party rhetoric. Mark Heiser, who is at this institution, has done a lot of this benchmarking work on economic voting. He's working now very strongly about how media is, is giving you information about how other economies are doing. That will be also, an, I don't want to write a book at the moment, but if I would want to write a book, it would be also very much about how those alternative states are being construed. And the sense is that they do not always need to be rational because they're in the future. I also show, by the way, in the, in the book, they can also be in the past. They can be very nostalgic. Right? They can also be negative in the past, rem remembrance to the Second World War, right? that that actually fuels cooperation. So it doesn't only need to be in the future or another member state or in the past, but those alternative states give you a lot of fluidity. It's much more difficult to construe, to change people's views about the status quo than it is to change people's states about the alternative state. So where we always think that in Referenda, there was a so-called status quo bias. People want to that depends on how well the alternative state is being construed. I think the number one, and I, I know I get in trouble saying that. Anyway, the, the number one perfect strategy of Brexiteers was to come up with this idea of, then later on, no deal. Anand Menon has really outlined perfectly that it isn't no deal. It isn't I'm going with my second-hand car to a, to, a, to a car dealer and say, oh, no deal, I don't want it. No, the reversion point is WH, uh, WTO standards, a whole lot worse. You're not going to keep the status quo. And that was, that I have to say, was brilliant. It's really bad, it's because it's, it's just, it's, it's, it's not, it's, it's construing an image. But they really made it seem that nothing else was going to change. It was just going to stay the way it is. And I think also maybe some Brexiteers didn't fully understand what was going to actually happen, right? They might have also not fully understood the customs union, I guess. Or the, the element. So it gives you a lot of free, you know, leeway 
to, to deal with that alternative state. But it's not always as transactional. That, that you compare it like that doesn't mean that the, that the logic you use to compare it with is necessarily based on the truth. Is you know, it can be very much based on perceptions. You know, yeah. So as my accent might give away, I'm a Brit. <laughs> Two very quick comments and a question. Yes, I think you're absolutely right about the no deal, the simplicity of it. I was on the demonstration in London yesterday and I saw a poster which said I preferred it when deal or no deal was just television. No deal rings a lot of bells in British TV watchers. And it's the status quo, it's that you don't open the box. I spent a lot of time with Leave voters who've become Remainer now. And you've seen the flip in opinion, you know, they are the bit that's moving in the middle, from precisely your rich poor differential a woman who's a neighbour in the north of England, and she loved that £4,000 message. It'll cost you £4,000. Great. I haven't got £4, but I'd love to see those bloody southerners cost £4,000. It was... What she's discovered is the EU added value. She's become a Remainer because her granddaughter wants to go to university, and frankly, they can afford it with an Erasmus year, and they can't without. So... The process you're mapping is really exactly what we're experiencing in grassroots activism. Question. You talked about political party loyalties and EU scepticism. If the UK gets as far as participating in the European Parliament elections, we will have a huge problem, which is also what's going on in Parliament tonight, which is that both the mainstream parties are split on this issue. Is that unique to the UK, or are we going to start to see mainstream parties in other countries split on Euroscepticism, on the sort of right-left colour. Mm -hmm. So there's two answers. So thanks very much. And I th I, I, I'll, I'll send, we'll, we'll exchange emails because I would like to, like to hear what you've done in the kind of grassroots because if, you know, it's something I'm thinking about also trying to uh, use different different um, research methods to get at, at what I'm trying to do. Uh, so great. Um, two questions, yes and no. Uh, uh, two answers, yes and no. So one yes, the UK is is unique in the, in, the, in, the, in the EU context in terms of its winner-take-all majoritarian system, which benefits, which doesn't lead to two parties. Remember, that's not what it leads to, because in, you have the SNP, you have Play Cymru, you have uh, 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 DUP and Sinn Féin in, 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 in Northern Ireland, you have the Greens, you had UKIP uh, by deserted uh, Conservatives in Essex. But um, you get these big tents, in the same way as you get it in the, in, in the US. That makes it very difficult. And that has made the, Jeff Evans wrote a very, from, from my former colleague at Oxford, wrote a very nice piece about John Major and his problems in, two, in, 12, in 2001 with the EU because of these backbenchers. And the European Research Group is just, in the Netherlands would have been another party, right? Be but because of the electoral system, they're in the conservatives, people are voting then strategically for the Conservatives, and we'll have to see if the independent group, if any of these things, will, 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 will be able to get regional representation. Because what you need is you need to be an SMP, right? You because Bre the, the, what people also tend to forget, because, oh, UKIP, UKIP didn't do anything electorally. UKIP was, in terms of vote, the third party in 2015. They had no regional representation. That was the problem of UKIP. They did well in European parliamentary election on the PR. They did a proportional representation. They did badly in, 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 in British elections. But... So this is the yes, but we've seen splits. Favour Day, the Netherlands. Geert Wilders comes out of the Favour Day on their stance on Turkey's succession. That was the reason he left. 
He didn't want to campaign in a 2005 constitutional referendum for the Constitutional Treaty. He linked it to immigration and Turkish accession. With a big, you know, of course, it didn't necessarily those two things were not together. The same, uh, you see the, the Constitutional Treaty referendum. It split up the Parti Socialiste, who went on two lists, like on, 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 on being Remain, being, or, or being yes, being no. It also fueled Mélenchon. You had, so you see this also in other, in other parties. What you usually have is that you actually see break-up earlier because it's more viable to become a political party, to start your own platform, and to do it. But we have seen splits on the EU. Also, the, we forget that, it has since 92, one of the earlier ones, were the Danish Social Democrats, right? The, the June movement goes into the European parliamentary election being your skeptic. The Social Democrats are the pro-EU. I don't know if that's still the case, but it was for the case a long time in the 90s and the early 2000s. So we've seen these kind of things. Just the only thing is Britain has also an electoral system uh, that, that, of course, favors. So it's very difficult for a party. But I, I mean, coming back to what you said about the European parliamentary election, whoa, you know, if Britain really goes into the European parliamentary election, I think it's also something that really EU27 are very worried about. They're very worried about a Brexit party. They're very buried also about an independent, but just, just other people that are going to be voted in. And then also, what do you do? If you then do leave, how are you going? It's, it's a very trinket. Interestingly, there were people, myself, was, you know, many other people who were there, who said, do you remember 2019 is a European parliamentary election? Are you really sure? Right? So this was told. David Allen Green wrote about this. So one of the, one of the lawyers in the, in the uh, brilliant FT uh, columnist, brilliant lawyer, don't enshrine 20 sec uh, 29th of March in the law, right? They did it. They have to now put it out. So this is still the case. She's totally right, Theresa May, that still it needs to be gotten out of the law in order to pass it. It probably will pass Parliament. But also many Labour and many Conservative MPs voted for that, where there were people saying at that moment in time, don't do that, don't do that, don't do that. That's not a good idea. Of course, no one could have thought the ramifications. It's always easier in hindsight, but there are some of these kind of issues where, where you know, they can rally around something, but then in other things. And that's why these motions tonight will be so interesting, right? In terms of what can Parliament rally around. And I, I also have some big doubts. I still think that there's this huge probability that Britain is going to crash out on the 12th of April. Because if the parliament, I mean, what do you do as the other side, right? So hopefully there will be some strategy coming out of parliament tonight. And that will allow some way forward. But it's extremely short and it's extremely, so, and, and this would be, but this would be a terrible thing for the EU and the UK. So, uh, you know, it, it's something that you want to avoid. But how do you do it? That's the problem, right? There's not a clear way of avoiding it either. So that, that makes it such a difficult you know, thing, and I'm really happy I'm not a national parliamentary leader, you know, that has to sit there and, and deal with that. If we do get to European Parliament elections, there's a fantastic case study. We yes. Know we can get the Remain vote out, yeah. but who do you vote for? Yes. Do you vote the Labour list? Yes. Do you vote the Conservative yes. list? When those lists are mixed, Yeah. Yeah. No, and I mean, the, the one last thing about that, about the UK, it's also, I, was, I think I was saying it to Mark Hollerberg earlier, it just also seems like the enormous kind of, you know, you wouldn't think of it as a Hollywood movie that you would get May and Corbyn and all of these, all of these ingredients together, 
right? It is, it is just the worst setup for a deal, right? So it is, it's, it's, it's really true. And that, of course, became, that, that information revealed itself only in the process. So it's not to say that all these MPs were not, no, that wasn't entirely clear. Right? It, people thought that Corbyn would move, right? And so, or that May would move, or that she had a strategy, and then, oh, no, maybe she doesn't, and yeah. There was a question in the front row. Yes. Uh, fascinating. Um, you quite rightly pointed out that uh, people, the knowledge people have about the EU is very limited in every country, specifically in the UK. But uh, I, I'm a bit surprised you didn't uh, talk about the media. Murdoch having bombarded people. Uh, or uh, Boris Johnson was a perfect example. He invented all these stories about how terrible the EU was, all these stories from Brussels. So when people don't know anything, they are perfect uh, uh, background for projecting anything on there. And anything that doesn't work, you can, of course, blame then to something that you've been told by the media uh, that's their fault. So I'm surprised you haven't uh, talked about that well, a bit more. Well, well I, 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 I totally, I mean, A, I'm not a communication scientist, so that's not necessarily, but I, I do think that that is, that is crucially important. But to be fair, people don't know a whole lot about politics, right? So there might be some issues where they know more about, but the EU is not, and actually by now, what people in EU 27 member states is, it's very similar to other areas. Actually, Brexit has revealed a lot of information about the EU. So now I would say that people, so there was a change where people will really not know, know more now, exactly, and it will be the same in the UK. But it's not to say that people are so knowledgeable about other things. And I mean, political scientists accept that. The elite company, and, and, you know, it's, it's a general kind of name that people are not so knowledgeable. So what they're looking out for is elites and, and, and opinion makers telling them to. But elites are also just party elites. So where do media get a lot? So I do think there might be a difference with social media. There are many people in this university that study social media. It's not something I do. So, so, so someone who I know quite well, who is at, uh, at, at uh, Bocconi, Massimo Morelli, who's, who, who tries to understand the rise of populism. One of his arguments is, he's a former modeler, he's an economist, but one of his arguments is, is that social media helps these parties who are usually ostracized by mainstream media because they get an access. Those of you who are on academic Twitter, if you academic tweet something, the Washington Post or the or the or the or the or the, or the, or the Wall Street Journal or the Spiegel, next day they're you know, hey, can you can I ask you for an honor? Probably that also works for when a politician says something. So there might have been something that changed, but nonetheless, in the in my answer to uh, to the young gentleman, sorry, I don't know your name, is that 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 there is something about the EU and this alternative state which also makes it really, really vulnerable to these type of things through rhetoric. And I show that also in the book. I look more party rhetoric, but of course the media will also play a role in that. I think it is something I'm very interested in, but I'm, it's also not my 100% my area of expertise, but it is, I think, a really important thing to look forward. But, you know, we've seen 2014 European parliamentary elections, and in many ways I showed that as well, that people are also responding to actual real-world conditions. I show that people responded to the cash for influence scandal in the European Parliament. 
that fell in a survey period. So I have people before and after, I can do a national experiment. They reacted to when the EU got a Nobel Peace Prize. They reacted to negative economic indicators, the, the EU doing worse than the, than the US, right? So they're also reacting to the real world. They're not only managed by, by, by bots or by, they also, they also react to what they see around them. So it's the question of like, what, when is what important? And that is, I think, an agenda for political scientists to go forward, right? In terms of, of, of how does speech matter, how does rhetoric matter, and how does social media play a role in that next to real economic changes and real changes to political conditions, which people also observe and also make their opinions about. Because if it was all the media all the time, you know, we should be able to predict a British election outcome by what the sun says. But we can't always, right? So there is also some room for, for, for reinterpretation. But yeah, of course, I mean, Britain particularly has a particular media landscape, which is very Eurosceptic, but I think it partly also reflected, maybe not the Euroscepticism, not that it was bound, but there's a lot of apathy towards the EU in the UK. They just didn't care and they didn't like it. And that was also kind of, so also not all newspapers were, but some of the most kind of in-depth analysis about the EU, I read in the Financial Times. Right, so in that way, you know, yeah. And that brings um, the front row, the other front row. Someone in the back. No, no, Thank back. you. So I have a, I have a puzzle that I, that I can't quite solve. So um, if the EU was, was conceived as a, as a peace project in its essence, yeah. and they're quite successful at this, so longest period without a, without a conflict in like roughly a thousand years in, in Western Europe, and... Um, then uh, there, there, there's maybe not a clear causal link between that, but um, at least 74% of people, um, as came out in the recent Pew um, opinion poll, seem to see that link. So then if we, if we look at it from um, alternative states and we take that into consideration, then we should expect that if people consider that the alt like a pos an al uh, alternative, that we would have a huge support to saying, yes, we want Europe, and then all the discussion should be limited to what kind of Europe do we want? Yeah. But why don't we see that? Mm -hmm. So, in, not in the book, but in a recent paper, which I called in a, in a wink to faulty towers, don't mention the war, uh, where I actually do this. I actually do survey experiments. I wrote a, a Washington Post blog about it last week, um, where I actually give people a vignette reminding them of the devastation. This is very difficult to do, right? And this is, I might have not succeeded at doing that, but this was the way I attempted to do that. So reminding people of the devastations of the Second World War, not mentioning perpetrators, not mentioning victims, because that might trigger something else, having really manipulation checks to make sure that it's not anti, that it's not pro-Jewish sentiment or anti-German sentiment that's being triggered. And then I go and look as if, and what I simply do is I have a battery of European cooperation questions. So do you want to, you know, provide, do you think that your nation should, should contribute to more financial assistance through the EU to struggling member states, through European armies? There are whole sets of, of kind of outcomes. Do you want to grant more rights to EU migrants? So basically, you know, like, uh, deepen free movement of people. And then I give a set of people, I give the vignette, prior to those questions, and another subset randomized, I give them after. 
So some people get that vignette. I also remind them to say what the devastations were, how many people were killed, how much, you know, like all these kind of things, so that they really read the vignette to make sure that they really did. And then I looked at the effect on their European cooperation. It only makes them want to pay more money to other member states. It doesn't want them to deepen the rights for EU migrants living in their country. They don't want to send any people into war under an EU flag. They don't want to contribute to a European army, but they do want to give more money, which maybe highlights something of a transactional nature. So that Pew result, I think, probably is there. And also many elites think about Helmut Kohl, right? The ultimate question, what he was, the ultimate question on the European economy is there peace or war? Right? Juncker, uh, uh, when people think that the question of peace and war is, uh, is answered on the, on, on the European continent, you know, you're, you're, you're mistaken. But he recently said, Macron, in his European Re Re um, Renaissance uh, letter, all references to the Second World War. So they do this a lot, invoking historical uh, thing, which would be a, then a quote-unquote positive, as you say, a negative alternative state. But it does only a little bit. So, and the thing I think is also, I looked at generations, it does a little bit more among the older generations than among the younger generation. And I think partly it is, is that the alternative state, why it's also so easy to frame, because people can't really understand no deal. What, is, what would that be? People don't really think that there will be war. Nah. Right. So I grew up, my dad unfortunately passed away. He was 85, was really young in the war. They had uh, British um, uh, pilots on their farm. He, I come from a very rural area. I, I, I thought that he made these kind of like, like stories as a young man and what he was doing and risks and so on. And he would g tell me these stories at night. And that is how I was educated. My daughter is not getting those stories from me. Just because I, I didn't live through that. She would get other stories which are very... But she's going to get much more stories. So it's also the question of some people suggest of saturation. That just that there's there's a limit to that you can invoke those images if people don't really credibly can connect it to something that they really have experienced. So in some ways, people would suggest that what you really do need, and I'm not saying that the EU needs this, but you need some enemy, you need some threat that creates some form of loyalty to this project, and you have to then choose us or them, right? But do we really want, you know, we want to test the brittle? Do we want to go that way? I mean, that's kind of extreme, right? And some people also suggested that Donald Trump was going to be that. So there is an interesting piece in Perspectives and Politics that uses a Eurobarometer, and Donald Trump gets elected within the Eurobarometer period. When you get interviewed in the Eurobarometer, is randomly assigned by lottery, so before, so they have people, they ask them about European integration cooperation before and after. Those people after Trump election report much more support for European cooperation than, than, than before. The question is how long did that last? Trump has normalized. So if that already happens with Trump, the normalization, imagine that with the Second World War. You know, at a certain point, these, 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 these invokes only work so much. And I thought it was quite striking that we, that I really, that we really found also only these, we want to pay more money. Right? And, and, and that also tells you something. And I, I do think there needs to be a story about what it means to be European. What it, what, with, 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 with benefits come obligations. With, with, uh, with being a member of this, there is a responsibility, right? 
but but it's but it's hard to do. I mean, as we just outlined, you know, the alternative state, it might be also e easier to frame things more negatively than positively. So there might be always some constraints if you look at some of that literature. But I, I, I yeah, I, I think I think there's only so much that that type of rhetoric can do. I think um, unfortunately we're slowly out of time or already over time. Um, Catherine, thank you so much for your talk. Thank you so much for your insights, for your data, for your interpretation of it, and also for your sobering notes. I think we thank forget you. these on the continent sometimes when we look at, oh, the US uh, done well out of Brexit, which I think is a much over-optimistic one. And I think thank you in particular for one of the comments you made um, about this, it shouldn't be in or out, right? It should be what kind of Europe. And let's see what the next two months bring in terms of potential answers to that. Um, let's hope we see some alternatives on the table, which are <laughs> real alternatives. Wisdom to our politicians. Uh, yes, yeah. <laughs> Thank you all very much for coming, um, for your questions. And yeah, let's uh, give a big round of applause to Catherine. Thank you for your questions. Thanks for listening. You can find more on our website at herity-school.org.